Excellent. Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brand. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. Uh, if you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome. If there's anything that we can do to help you get connected to the community here, we would genuinely love to be able to do that. Uh, we're a friendly group around here, and we'd love to get to know you and help you get plugged into the community here. So excited to continue walking our way through our series in 1 Corinthians. If you've been gone or if you are just joining us for the first time, let me catch you up as we dive into our study this morning. 1 Corinthians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the ancient city of, of uh, Corinth. And it was a str really strategically important city in the Mediterranean because it was kind of situated in this section where it made it kind of the de facto port city, basically for trade between Rome and the rest of the Mediterranean. So Corinth was this incredibly wealthy port city and very influential and important. But it was also a new city. Rome had conquered the city a while back and decided that they were going to just, just totally destroy it. And then when they were good and ready, they resettled it. And, and so they resettled the city with basically people who were freed slaves and army veterans. And so you have Corinth as this new city that's incredibly wealthy and important because of the nature of its location. And it's full of people who are in a space and a stage in life where they're making a new identity for themselves. They're out for setting up new futures and new, new horizons for their families and, and looking to make a name and to make an identity for themselves. And, and that context is so important in Corinth because that, uh, this upwardly mobile mindset was something that basically controlled everything that happened in the city. Basically, if you were in Corinth in the first century, the thing you and everyone else cared most about was climbing the social and economic ladder or maintaining your place at the top of that ladder. And tragically, what we've seen in, as we've studied the letter is that the church in Corinth was no exception. Right? Uh, the, the, what's painfully clear as you read the letter is that their highest priority was not God's glory and not the advancing of God's kingdom, but was their own glory and the advancing of their own kingdoms and their own status in the, in the Corinthian world. And as we've seen, it's been causing all kinds of problems. It was totally distorting their view of leaders and of leadership itself. It was leading them towards fighting and divisions and factions forming in their church. It was leading towards individual members in their church suing each other in order to kind of claim their rights and to climb the social ladder and the social status. And it was resulting in them not only approving of all kinds of sexual immorality in the lives of others, but practicing those things in their own lives themselves. And we're not even halfway through the book. Like, it's not going great for the Corinthians. See, while they may have believed the message of the gospel, their lives and their community were not being ongoingly formed by it. Instead, their lives and their community were being formed by the values and the ethos of the culture that was all around them. Like we saw last week, as we looked at chapter 7, the way that they viewed marriage and singleness were just two more ways that they were being formed by the culture around them rather than being transformed by the person and the work of Jesus and the message of the gospel. Instead of seeing their singleness or their marriages ultimately as opportunities to live for the glory of God, they primarily saw them as about them. They were merely puzzle pieces in the social status game in Corinth, and they were ultimately about their own self-gratification and their own self-promotion. And throughout the chapter, the big idea that Paul's trying to get across in chapter 7 is that not only that marriage and singleness aren't about you, that they're about God, but ultimately as well that marriage and singleness are both good gifts from God. They're both good ways that we get to live out our true calling of living for the glory of God in all of life. 
because our ultimate calling is, as God's people isn't, about, uh, isn't ultimately wrapped up in physical procreation. Our ultimate calling as God's people is to give our lives to the pursuit of spiritual regeneration in our own lives and in the lives of others. And, and so that means that Jesus' great commission and the mission of making disciples, our, our true calling as God's people, is something that we can all participate in. No matter what marital status you have, whether you're single or married or anywhere in between, you can be a part of that happening. Sadly, we talked about how in the church, the church has often been a place where singleness is kind of treated like junior varsity and marriage is varsity. And if you're really a mature Christian, then you'll get married. And that's just not true. That's not how God sees things. And that's why we work really hard at River City to intentionally create an environment in our church where no matter whatever your relationship status is, that you can be a part of the community here and you can be an equal part of the community here. And so at River City, being single is not second class. It is an equally good way to live for the glory of God. And that's not just because we think so. It's because God's word says that that is the case. We saw last week, Paul's encouragement was for those whom God has called to singleness for however long that season in life may be, whether it's temporary or permanent, the call is to live with a single-minded devotion to God. And to seek to maximize the, the time that you have and the flexibility that that station in life allows you to advance his kingdom and to make Jesus' name great instead of advancing your own kingdom and using your time and flexibility to make your own name great. And to live selflessly for the glory of God and the good of others. And we talked about how that, the only way that that's possible is when we're motivated and empowered by the eternal perspective that we get from Jesus. When, when we see that Jesus gave himself wholly to God's purposes and to his kingdom and to us and for our good, that we would no longer live for the things that of this world that are passing away, but that we'd actually live with the things that are eternal in mind. And that that would shape our actions and our behaviors in the middle of life. But like I mentioned, being devoted to living for the glory of God isn't just a call God gives single people, it's a call God gives all people who follow him. And so unsurprisingly, Paul has some specific instructions for what that looks like to live for God's glory in the context of marriage throughout chapter 7. And as we study this morning, we're going to see Paul calling the Corinthians and to us to, to glorify God in our marriages and through being characterized by a self-giving service and by sanctifying faithfulness in the context of our marriage. And so as we look at those things this morning, we're going to see God's call for us to live for his glory in the context of our marriages. I'll just say this, wherever you're at, whether you are married or single or divorced, as we'll even talk about some of that stuff this morning, God's word has something for us wherever we're at this morning. And I'd encourage you, ask God what it is that he might have to be saying to you as we pray. So let's do that and we'll dive in. Jesus, we are so grateful for you and for your word and God, as we come this morning to you, uh, God, we just really want to just remind ourselves and express our dependence on you. God, I'm exhausted this morning, and uh, I'm just very aware that I do not have what I need without you empowering me. And um, so I need you to be able to teach rightly from your word and to do that with any kind of power. God, and, but it's not just me that needs you. We all need you. We need you to empower us to be able to hear and respond rightly to your word and, and to be willing to put ourselves under the good authority of your word. And so, God, we, we just need you for all of that this morning. And we ask, God, for our good, but ultimately for your glory, that you'd help us to do that and that you'd meet us in our need for you. And so we just wait expectantly, knowing that you love to do that, God. In your good name we pray. Amen. 
Well, before we dive into our passage this morning, just a quick heads up. Normally, as we study God's Word, we just work our way through the passages, through the chapters, just verse by verse as they go. But in Corinthians chapter 7, Paul's kind of ping-ponging back and forth between a few ideas that he traces throughout the, the chapter as a whole. And uh, so instead of, if you were here last week, we kind of jumped around throughout chapter 7, picking out kind of the the concentric themes that were there. We're going to do that again this morning. This morning, we're going to be focusing on the instruction that Paul gives throughout the chapter for those who are married. And so that's where we're headed this morning. And uh, it's a little bit odd this week, but hopefully that makes sense of why we're jumping around in the passage a little bit more than we normally do. So we're going to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It begins this way. Now, for the matters that you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. And the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband in the same way. The husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps for mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Going on in verse 10, Paul writes, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. And that little phrase there when he says, not I but the Lord, what he's saying is that this is something Jesus specifically talked about. So he's referencing, he's quoting things that Jesus specifically said. He's saying, A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does that she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. He goes on again in verse 39 about this. He says, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, then she's free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. Going back to verse 12 now, he says, To the rest of this, uh, to the rest I say this, I not the Lord. And again, that phrase, he's saying, Jesus didn't talk about this issue specifically. So I'm not quoting Jesus here, but he's not trying to dial back. It's not like, oh, this is less Bible than the rest of the stuff he's talking about. Uh, he's just saying, Jesus didn't say something specifically about this issue. So he says, To the rest of this I say, I not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, then he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, then she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. For the brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances, for God has called us to live in peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So, like I said, there's a lot to get through this morning. There's a lot of things in our passage. But throughout, the chapter, throughout chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians as a whole, what Paul's doing is he's, he's correcting some of the Corinthians' misunderstandings and misconceptions about marriage and about singleness. And like I said before, in the sections that we are dealing with this morning, specifically in chapter 7, he's focusing on addressing the way that they understand and relate to one another in the context of marriage. And specifically, he's talking about around the issues of sexual intimacy and divorce. 
And on the front end of our study this morning, I just want to shoot straight with you, right? These topics can be really hard for us to talk about. They can be really awkward and really difficult to talk about, not only because what our world has to say is such at odds with what God's word teaches, but also because these are both areas that are often so deeply associated with with, uh, pain and hurt in our lives. Some from the past, some from it, the present, maybe in your own marriage, maybe in the marriages of people you love and care about. Talking about intimacy and divorce, they can bring up all kinds of emotions, whether that's hurt and sorrow and loss or even things like anger or regret or guilt or shame. And so I just want to acknowledge that on the front end and just to, just to be sensitive as we discuss God's calling on our lives in these areas this morning. And what I hope to do as we study, even though these things can be difficult to talk about, what I hope to do as we study is, is to show you how God's calling for marriages to glorify him in these ways, while often difficult, are really actually an invitation towards life that God has for us, as we, uh, and, and real joy and fulfillment as we actually surrender ourselves towards living for him and living for the good of others. And so they are challenging things that we're going to talk about this morning, but I hope that you will see that they are good things that God wants to, he wants us to see them for our joy and for life and for his glory. So the first thing that we see, especially in verse one through five, we really see this. The first way that the passage is calling us to live for God's glory in our marriages is is by being characterized by an attitude of self-giving service towards our spouse. Being characterized by an attitude of self-giving service towards our spouse. You see, the, the Corinthian culture at large was, was deeply hedonistic, right? Which is about all about pleasing yourself in whatever ways you find necessary. And so they viewed the pursuit of sexual fulfillment in whatever means necessary, almost as like it was a fundamental right that they had. And the idea that sexual fulfillment should or even could, for that matter, be found in the context of marriage would have just been like absolute craziness in the Corinthian world, much like it seems in our own world today. And we saw in chapter 6 how there were some in the church who were, just had wholeheartedly adopted the Corinthian mindset when it came to sexuality. And they were living in all kinds of sexual immorality in their lives. But what we see this morning is that there's also another group in the church that saw all that was going on in their culture around them. And they saw the, the ways that their culture was embracing what God had opposed in sexual immorality. But instead of fleeing sexual immorality like we saw in chapter 6, they overcorrected to the point where they were fleeing all sexual activity altogether, even in the context of marriage. And so that's what Paul's referring to in verse 1 when he, when he says, now about the issues you're asking about, right? They had written him a letter, and they're like, hey, so what are we supposed to do with this, right? Like, is it actually good for us? Like, are, we, are you saying no sex at all? Are you, what's going on here? And Paul's response to, to, these, to both of these groups is basically, you're both wrong. You're both wrong. He says, sex itself isn't the problem. It's using sex outside of God's good design for it. That's the problem. He's saying to them this morning, God isn't anti-sex. He's designed sex as a good gift for our joy and for his glory. And, And so to one group in this church who sees sex as this ultimate thing, he says, sex is not God. It's not the ultimate thing. And to this other group who sees it kind of as this gross thing that they're trying to avoid, he says, sex is not gross. It's a gift that God gives, but he says it's a gift that is intended to be used exclusively in the context of a marriage between a husband and a wife. 
And we don't have time this morning to do the deep dive on why that is the case, but I would really encourage you, if you missed it a couple of weeks back when we walked through the second half of of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we spent the whole week talking about God's good design for our sexuality and what that looks like in our lives and why those things are the way that they are. And so if you missed that, I'd really encourage you, go find that on our website. It'll be really helpful in the midst of some of this stuff. But The long and short of it this morning is that Paul's saying, he says that because sexual immorality is the problem, not sex itself, that people should get married and they should regularly enjoy the good gift of sexual intimacy inside the bounds that God has intended for it. Verse two, he says, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Verse three, the husband should fulfill his marital duties to his wife, likewise the wife to her husband, which isn't that just the absolute height of romantic poetry right there, right? Honey, let's fulfill marital duties, right? Like, no. Paul was clearly not like a romantic poet, right? He's more of a a straight shooter here, right? But joking aside, right, the, the good news of these verses is not just that sex and marriage is a good gift that God gives, but actually, and encourages us to enjoy, but actually that doing so actually helps guard us against sexual immorality. That embracing sexuality as God has designed it actually keeps us, it helps us to guard against sexual immorality. Husbands and wives, Paul's saying this morning is that when we physically give ourselves to our spouse regularly and wholeheartedly, that that is not actually just about pleasing one another, but it's actually about helping one another please God and obey him and honor him. Now, before we keep going this morning, let me just be overtly and abundantly clear, right? This passage is not a license for you to blame your spouse or your lack of a spouse for your own sin, sexual or otherwise. It is not a license to blame anybody else. Blame shifting goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. It doesn't work. It doesn't absolve anybody of sin. It's just more sin itself, right? And so Paul is not saying that if the sexual relationship with your spouse isn't what you want it to be or isn't what you hoped it would be, then somehow their sin is your, your sin is their fault or that you're excused from the mistakes that you made in your own sin? No. But what Paul is saying is that regularly embracing the gift that God's given of intimacy within your marriage, it actually does meaningfully help us say yes to God and no to sexual immorality. And so you don't get to blame your spouse, but you do get to help each other honor God in this way. And that brings us to what's so striking about the way that Paul calls couples to practice sexuality in their marriages. He says, unlike the Corinthian world and our own world, really, for that matter, which views sex primarily in a self-focused way, we see throughout our passage, and especially in verse 4, that that a God-glorifying sexual intimacy in marriage is decidedly not self-focused, but other focus. Verse four, he says, the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way. The husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. And before we just dive into that, I just want to say, I think tragically verses like this have been used throughout history to enable or excuse abuse. And that is absolutely not what God is talking about here, Okay. And so if you are in a situation where you are being abused or someone's using passages like this to abuse you sexually, I just want to be overtly and absolutely abundantly clear. God is 100% opposed to that in every way. And he's not calling you to just like endure that somehow for him. 
And so if that is a situation that you were in, I want to encourage you to get out of that situation immediately and ask for help and bring others into that situation because that is not what Paul's talking about here. You see, God isn't calling us to a self-centered, demanding approach to sexuality, but instead a self-giving, other-focused approach to it. It's an, it's an approach to intimacy that fundamentally begins not by asking the question, what satisfies me or what pleases me, but instead about asking the question, what pleases and what satisfies my spouse? You see, what makes marriage and what makes intimacy great in that context is when each of us are thinking not about our own needs first, but about the needs of, our, of the other. Philippians 2 says that kind of a mindset in all of life is actually something we get from Jesus himself, who didn't, who didn't first look to his own interests, but first looked towards the interests and the good of others. You see, but we live in a world where sex is almost universally about us. It's about ourselves, it's about our own pleasure, it's about our own fulfillment, it's about our own satisfaction and all those things. And so the question can be, how could sexual activity that is selfless actually be fulfilling? One commentator, I think, just so helpfully sums it up this way. He says, some wonder how sexual activity can be truly satisfying or even enjoyable without focusing on yourself. The idea of selflessness here seems so contradictory in our world. Does, it not, does not getting the most out of this activity require putting your own desires ahead of everything else? And the surprising answer is no. Both on biblical terms and based on human experience, God has embedded a paradox into how this kind of pleasure works that helps to restrain human selfishness. For the more a couple focuses on pleasing each other, the more enjoyment each receives in return. And the more a person focuses on demanding their own satisfaction, the less satisfaction is possible. Hear this, self-centeredness always destroys satisfaction in this arena. And unselfishness always makes it better. Selfishness always destroys but unselfishness always makes things better in this way. You see, at the heart of the passage is a call for us to see the idea of sexual intimacy with our spouse as a way we get to serve our spouses in a selfless way that is for their good and ultimately, is in the end, is actually about God's glory, which is why for a host of, un which is why for a ton of other reasons as well, that looking at pornography and engaging in masturbation are sinful problems because they are inherently self-focused ways to practice and use our sexuality. They are fundamentally ways we use it that are about us, that view it as purely for ourselves. Additionally, this is why using sex as a currency in your marriage is also a problem, whether that's withholding sex from your spouse in order to get them to do something you want to do or punish them for not doing something you wanted them to do or using sex to get your spouse to agree to something you want them to agree to. Those are problems and that God is opposed to them because they are fundamentally self-focused ways to use our sexuality. And God says, no, your sexuality is not about you. It's about the good of your spouse and ultimately it's about the glory of God. And when we use those things in selfish ways, it ruins them. Not only will engaging in these kinds of things ruin the good gift of sex in marriage, it destroys trust and intimacy in your marriage. It ruins those kinds of things. 
So I want to encourage you to run from that kind of stuff. Lastly, let me just briefly address verse 5 and the call. Paul says here not to deprive one another. Now, what that doesn't mean is that you can never say no to your spouse, right? Hopefully it's obvious that that's not what that means. But it, it does mean that if you're characterized by an attitude of self-giving service towards your spouse, that saying no should be the exception rather than the rule. And if you regularly turn down your spouse's advances or invitations, then you're going to accidentally create an unhealthy culture in your marriage that diminishes intimacy, but ultimately that's one that is going to be ripe for bitterness and resentment. Instead, ask God that he might help you to enjoy the good gift that he has given you as a way to bless your spouse and as a way to glorify him. And let that be the thing that fuels your yeses, even the moments when you're not really in the mood. And also, let me just be clear here as well. There are all kinds of reasons why intimacy in the context of marriage is really hard. Some of them are, there might be physical limitations that make that difficult. There might be past sin or addiction issues that impact that. There, there might be trauma or abuse that impacts that kind of thing. And so I just want to encourage you, if that's a space where you find yourself this morning, don't walk through that alone. Talk with your spouse about those things. Talk with your small group leaders. Talk with Aaron or I. Ask for help from others. I know, and especially when it comes to sexuality, it can be one of the most difficult things for us to talk about and have conversations about. There's so much guilt and shame wrapped up in conversations around it. But I think as a community that loves Jesus and wants marriages that are healthy and strong to flourish, then we need to be able to create a culture where those conversations are possible and where we can serve one another and help each other process through those things. So just know you're not alone and you don't need to be alone in the middle of that. Additionally, Paul isn't saying that there can't ever be intentional times when you aren't intimate with your spouse, but he does say that those times should be agreed upon and that they should be limited in, in scope. In other words, uh, one spouse can't just decide they're going to go on a spiritual walkabout for a few months and be like, I'm out, right? I'm going to find the Lord, right? That's not how that works, right? It's not a thing. It's not a thing. Because again, intimacy in your marriage is not about you. It's fundamentally, ultimately about God and for the good of your spouse and good of one another. And so when, also when Paul says that the purpose of this time should be in order to devote yourselves to prayer and seeking God, he's not trying to infer that like uh, sexual intimacy with your spouse keeps you from seeking God, uh, just like he's not saying eating food keeps you from seeking God, right? But he, what he is saying is that sometimes, just like fasting from food, can in, like intentionally doing that for a time can help you focus on the Lord. Sometimes fasting from intimacy with your spouse when it's something you agree on together can be something that helps you to focus your attention on the Lord, okay? Now, before we move on here and, and keep going in our passage, I think if we're honest, uh, it's really husbands who are super hoping that their wives will really take these verses to heart, right? And so what I want to actually do is talk to you husbands instead, right? Because... because I want to challenge you with this. What does it look like, especially for husbands, for you to think first not about 
how your wife can serve you or about how she can submit herself to you, but instead to think first about how you can submit your own body to her. These, this verse, especially verse 4, would have been so wildly radical in the ancient world, which was so deeply hierarchical and men always has authority. And so Paul says, no, it's not just women that should submit themselves to men, it's husbands who should, should in the same way, he says, submit themselves to their wives. And so husbands, I want to encourage you, before you start thinking about how this verse applies to somebody else, ask how it might, God might be challenging it to apply to you. What does it look like for you to ask the question about your spouse? What pleases her? What makes her feel loved and valued and cherished and close to you? And I have a feeling that what you're going to pretty quickly find if you start asking yourself and your wife those kinds of questions is you're going to find pretty quickly that intimacy rarely starts in the bedroom. Often it starts while you're at the kitchen sink doing the dishes, right? Or you're in the backyard and you've taken your kids for a Sometimes, so that your wife can just have a few moments of peace and quiet to herself. Or it's on the couch as you ask her genuinely, how is she doing? And how can you be praying for you, her? And how can you be serving her? You see, what I'm trying to say is that intimacy begins not just in the bedroom. It begins with a service, uh, it begins with an attitude of self-giving service in all of life, not just in the bedroom. And so what I'm not trying to say is that selflessly serving your spouse will simply just magically solve all of your intimacy problems. But I am encouraging you as husbands, start there. Ask God to empower you out of a love for him and a love for your wife. Hear me, not to get something from your wife, but out of a love for her and a love for him. Ask him to empower you to selflessly serve your spouse outside of the bedroom so that you might see what might happen in that area of your life. Also, single guys, if you want to be a good husband one day, start learning now how to selflessly serve other people, right? I'm not trying to sell you to do that sexually because that, again, would defeat the whole point of what Paul was talking about in chapter 6. But start learning how to selflessly care for the good of other people. That's one of the best things you can do to ready yourself to be a good husband one day. And so again, the first way we see this passage calling us to live for God's glory in our marriage is by being characterized by an attitude of self-giving service towards our spouse. But it's not just self-giving service that we're called to in our marriage. There's also in the second half of our passage, we see Paul calling us to a radical kind of faithfulness. See, in verse 10 through 11, as well in verse 39, Paul's referencing Jesus' own instruction in Matthew chapter 19 when he tells husbands and wives that they should not divorce each other. See, in the Corinthian culture, marriage was just another puzzle piece in the social status game. And so you got married as a way to climb the social status ladder. And so as soon as that person wasn't fulfilling your needs in some way, shape, or form, or wasn't helping you climb the ladder, then you were free to just discard them. And sadly, in a Jewish context, it wasn't all that much different. We read in Matthew, 20, or Matthew 19 again about Jesus. He's confronting these religious leaders because they were affirming that basically you should be able to divorce your wife for whatever reason you want to. We have quotes from first century rabbis that said that a man could divorce his wife if she spoiled a dinner for him or if, she, or if he just found somebody that was more beautiful than her. And yet Paul, echoing Jesus' words here, is saying that that is not how we look at it. 
See, in their world, divorce was always this viable option. It was always an escape route out of whatever it was because, again, marriage and sexuality and all that stuff was about you. And so Paul and Jesus are saying, no. No, it's not about you. It's really about God. And so marriage isn't a commitment that you make for as long as you both shall lust after each other, nor is it a commitment you make for as long as you both shall have feelings of love for each other. He says, no, it's for as long, verse 39, as long as you shall live. You see, and Paul and Jesus are, are not saying that there are no grounds where divorce is possible or even the right thing. Jesus talks in Matthew 19 about how sexual unfaithfulness can be, can be grounds for divorce. And in the second half of our passage this morning, Paul, he talks about being abandoned as another grounds for divorce. And, and I'll just say this, that, that abuse would, would absolutely fall within the category of being abandoned by your spouse, right? And so again, do not hear me in any way saying that you should just suffer abuse in some way to honor the Lord. That's absolute garbage. And if anyone has ever said that, that's a, that's a lie from the pit of hell, Okay? Instead, though, they both emphasize, Paul and Jesus, they emphasize that divorce should always be a last resort. J.D. Greer, one pastor, he says it this way, divorce should be as radical as amputating a limb. There are times when amputation is absolutely necessary, but any doctor would be run out of their practice if they were constantly and quickly saying, let's just amputate it. You see, amputation is the last thing that you do in order to save a life after you ex have exhausted every other option. So if you are here this morning and you are considering divorce, I just want to encourage you, don't make that decision alone. Don't walk through the heaviness of that by yourself. It can be so easy to feel like that's not something that you can talk about with people in the church, but this should be the absolute best place that you can talk about that and where you can find a community that will come alongside you and encourage you and help you walk through that. You see, Paul here and throughout Scripture, we see that God in God's Word is so opposed to divorce and it's not because God just looks down as it's not the right way or something like that, but because there are such deep things that are involved with it. First, God knows that divorce is incredibly painful and traumatic. It harms spouses and kids and families and friends. And God knows the pain of divorce firsthand. He's not just seeing it from afar. We read in Jeremiah chapter 3, God's talking about how his people have been overtly and repeatedly unfaithful to them. And in verse 8, it says that he gives his people a certificate of divorce and he sends them away. And so if you're here this morning, and if you've been through a divorce, I just want to be abundantly clear. It is absolutely true that God's word says that he hates divorce, but he does not hate you. He doesn't hate you. Instead, God is a good father who knows firsthand the pain of that kind of a situation. And he longs to spare you from the, the difficulties of that. And so in love as a good father, he is out ahead of you, calling for your good and wanting your good and leading you towards what is good, even if it is hard. And for those of you who are considering divorce, Again, I want to encourage you, talk with God about that before you just talk with friends. And also, talk with those in the community here at church that can help you process through those things. Again, it's not that there are no situations where that is the right option, but we should use it as a very last resort. 
And so God's opposed to it because it's so painful, but also God's opposed to divorce because it tells a lie about him. We read in Genesis 1 and 2 that marriage is one of the unique ways that we get to bear God's image and reflect his nature and character in the world. And we see in Ephesians 5, again, that marriage is intended to be this picture of the relationship between Jesus and his church. And at the heart of both of those pictures is a steadfast faithfulness to one another that reflects God's steadfast faithfulness to us. And so divorce mars the image of God intended, that he intended for marriage to display as a revelation of his nature and his character and of his faithfulness. And he, it's, it's an image our world so badly needs to see. What it really means to love another selflessly and faithfully. But lastly, as we see in our passage this morning, God's opposed to divorce because marriages, even hard marriages are relationships in which God is able to redeem and renew and restore, and ones in which he uses us to do that. In verse 12 through 16, Paul's writing about not initiating a divorce with an unbelieving spouse, but instead choosing to press into a, a faithfulness and a love for them. Verse 14, he says, for the reason, he says, was for the unbelieving husband's been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through a believing husband. Verse 16, he goes on, for do you not know, wife, whether, you're, whether or not you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And Paul is not saying that, that you can save your unbelieving spouse somehow by just simply staying married to them, but that God can and does use us in the context of those relationships to reveal himself to our unbelieving spouses and kids. And that it's not your faith that saves them somehow, but as we live out our faith in the close relationships of a family, and as we show the gospel's transforming work in our hearts and in our lives, it becomes good news. It can become good news by God's power in the context of those relationships. And just to be clear again, God is not encouraging you. Neither is Paul trying to get you to say like, oh, let's just date or marry people that aren't Christians so we can evangelize them, right? Hopefully we all can tell that's a stupid idea, okay? Right? It's not like gray area, that's dumb, right? Rather, the situation Paul's talking about here is when two non-believers get married. This would have been happening all the time in Corinth, right? The gospel is brand new in the world. This church is just a few years old, and so there are people throughout the city that are becoming Christians, and they're married in the midst of that. And so one of the spouses becomes a Christian, and their other spouse isn't. Or maybe they married each other thinking that they were both Christians, and it turns out that one of them really isn't. And in those situations, Paul is saying that there is a call instead of running to divorce to instead to press into the redeeming work that God is doing through our marriages, even in the midst of marriages that aren't on the same page about God. And that is an incredibly hard call. Paul's not trying to say that that's easy, but it is something he calls us to. Read this week, there was an article written by a woman named Sheila Dougal, and uh, the title of this article was the idea that God hasn't wasted my marriage to an unbelieving spouse. And in it, she, she just writes so beautifully. She says, she says, learning to follow Jesus in my marriage has been far from easy. But as I look back, I realize that there was and is a superpower in me stretching me to reach across our great divide. And that superpower is the faithfulness of God. He who is faithful does not grow weary, and he gives power to the faint, empowering me to be faithful too. 
And so even if my marriage is lost and even if my husband never bends his knee to Jesus, the call to faithfulness will never leave me. And I don't want to bear that kind of pain, of course. But the faithfulness of God is a mountain remaining intact even if my marriage doesn't. You see, if we are going to be a people who glorifies God in the context of our marriages, then we are going to need his power to do it. No matter who you are married to, because no matter who you're married to, you are married to a wicked sinner, right? And two sinners don't make no sin. Two sinners added together make complicated trouble, okay? That's how it works. And so we are going to need every ounce of God's power and goodness and his redeeming love for us if we're going to be a people that honors him in the context of our marriages. We're going to need to see that Jesus is the one who has been faithful to us in spite of our unfaithfulness to him. And we're going to need to be motivated by God's faithfulness and empowerment in order to, for our own faithfulness to our spouses. And we need to see that Jesus gives himself selflessly to us for our good, not when we are worthy and not because we loved him already, but when we were hard to love. And it's only when you keep coming back to regularly, ongoingly, when you keep coming back to Jesus' selfless love for you when you did not deserve it and his radical faithfulness to you in spite of your faithlessness to him that you will have any hope of having a power and a strength to actually love your spouse like he calls you to. You see, Jesus, I need you to see this. Jesus is not just your example. If he's your example, he crushes you because you never live up to him. But he is your power. And it's a, his love for you that frees you from a slavery to your own passions and your own desires and to the, into the ways of this world and that empowers you to actually be the people he calls you to be and actually love your spouse the way he calls you to. You cannot do it without him. You cannot do it. And that's why every week as we take communion, we're choosing to remember Jesus. We do it every week because we forget all the time. We forget all that Jesus has done for us. We forget the way he selflessly gave himself to us, all of himself. And we forget the ways that he was faithful to us in spite of our ridicule and our unfaithfulness to him. And so communion is a chance for us to remember. And to remind ourselves about the God that we worship and serve and the one who empowers us to be his people in the world and in our marriages. In communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't save you. It doesn't somehow change your status or your standing with God. Instead, it's a chance for you to remember, to set your eyes again on Jesus' radical love for you so that you might be empowered by his love, overflowing with it, with a love for your spouse and a willingness to selflessly give yourself to them and to radically be faithful to them in the midst of difficult things. And so as we sing and as we worship and as you remember the gospel together in song, if you've put your trust in Jesus, if he is your hope, if he's the one that's your king, that you live for him, he's not just your savior, but he is your Lord, then whenever you are ready, go back and take communion. If you miss the elements on your way and you can find them on a table in the back on the left and on the right and 
And you don't need to belong to, you don't need to, belong to a, this church and be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. But if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, and if that's even something you want to do, then I'd encourage you, hold off on taking communion. You are welcome here. You are welcome in this church. You are welcome in this community. But Jesus is the thing you need. Communion is about remembering him. And so receive him before you try to remember him. He is what you need. As we take communion and as we sing, I want to encourage you, wherever you're at, talk with God this morning. If you're here this morning and you're married, ask him how he is calling you to embody and to reflect his self-giving service of you and his faithfulness towards you in the context of your marriage. Ask him how he is empowering you to do that. And if you're single this morning, if you're here and you're not married, or maybe you're divorced this morning, ask God to give you grace and humility to live in the context of the season that he's given you, but also ask him to prepare you for whatever he has next in your life. Maybe you're not married yet and you want to be. Ask him that he be making you ready to be characterized by a faithfulness and a self-giving service of others now so that you'll be ready when you're, when you're married to live that out well. All of us, let's talk with the Lord and be honest with him. Confess our sin. Receive his grace so it might live for his glory wherever we're at. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for your word. God, it is uh, it's challenging this morning. And they're not easy or light things to talk about, but God, we, I, God, I pray as we have studied your word that you might graciously by your spirit cause it to be good news to us. Correct us where we need it, King Jesus. Uh, encourage us where we need it. Shape us where we need to be shaped. Confront us where we need to be confronted. God, but most of all, help us to see Jesus as the one who has selflessly and faithfully loved us so that we might be characterized by a selfless and faithful love in our marriages. God, we cannot do that on our own. God, empower us by your spirit for our good and for your glory, we ask it. Amen.